Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I am your host, Harriet Hendel, and we always have a theme that connects each of our podcasts together. Um, last time we were on the air, we met with people who are on staff at the Pennsylvania Prison Society in Philadelphia a society that was founded in 1787, which always amazes me when I say that date. So we, we met some of the staff and kind of did an overview, but today we have one of the staff members and we will go more in depth as to what his role is. And then in the next couple of weeks, we will meet the other two staff members and they will tell us about their role in the Pennsylvania Prison Society. So today we have Anton Andrew with us, and he is the public affairs fellow for the society. So I'm going to ask him what that actually means to be a fellow and welcome Anton. Harriet, um, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. And um, in terms of what my role means, and, and I remember you asking me a question once or, or posing this question to me about, oh, so you are basically the voice of the prison society. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I said at the time, I, I'm not the voice of the prison society. I would say I am more a microphone or a megaphone to help amplify the voices of our 350 plus amazing volunteers across the state who use our legislatively mandated access to go into um, prisons and jails throughout the state to talk to inmates about the conditions and the treatment um, that they're receiving and help problem solve with them around both of those areas. So my job is simply to let the rest of the world know what those volunteers are witnessing um, and give the most accurate picture of what life behind bars in Pennsylvania really looks like. Um, I also work with a very small but mighty staff of about a half a dozen people which will be expanding in the new year to include a couple new regional organizers to help organize that massive group of volunteers. Um, but as you know, I work with John, um, who works sort of in the prison monitoring arm of what we do. I work with Kirsten, who you'll be speaking with later, who um, works with in regard to our social supports and work with um, our executive director who, um, you know, without her sort of visionary leadership, and I'm I'm not just blowing smoke. Mm -hmm. um, I know when I first heard of the organization, um, I was looking at another position, but we spoke, and after speaking, she's like, Anton, your education and advocacy background, and the fact that we need to raise awareness of what's going on, means that we will go out on a limb in the middle of you know, a global pandemic when you know, trying to find resources, we are not publicly funded, we're a private nonprofit, um, was very tough. She said, we'll go out and we'll create this position right now because people more than ever need to know what's going on behind bars. So 
that's a long way of saying um, I'm part of an exceptional team who realizes, you know, this is the moment not to sort of shrink back from what's going on, but to really shine a light on, you know, a huge population of people who thus far have been largely ignored um, by the people who are supposed to be responsible for that. That's true. There is so much to say about um, what is really going on in the prisons. And I've often said to people, unless you visit um, or teach, and and I've done both, uh, you really don't know. And even then, you, you certainly don't know it all, but you know more if you are walking the halls of a prison, say, in their school um, or in a visiting room. And, and those, those are pretty much the only you know, ways that maybe the public could uh, get in. But there's so much that goes on that needs changing. Um, I'm going to be a devil's advocate and say, how much can you really advocate for change when the the job is overwhelming? There's so much wrong with what is going on. Uh, that um, Harriet, um, I think what happened in the last year and a half, as we've gone through an age of COVID nineteen, um, showed the world just how important our work is. Um, mm-hmm. I joined the uh, the organization at a time when they were releasing a report um, about life behind bars during COVID-19, where um, with interviews with hundreds of inmates at various uh, Pennsylvania correctional institutions revealed what life really was like. Um, And that report informed the decision-making of the then secretary of the Department of Corrections, um, Secretary John Wetzel. Um, I specifically remember the first time I saw Secretary John Wetzel was during an appropriations hearing in Harrisburg, and he was almost, I won't say almost reading from our report, but he was responding directly to issues we pointed out in our report about things such as the inconsistent masking by the staff, Mm -hmm. the lack of uh, enough hygienic supplies, and things like the lack of communication with inmates about the individual facilities plans for mitigating for what was going on and what was going on in the outer outer world. And while this may seem obvious to you and I, of course, they're going to have challenges with this. Of course, this is going to be important. Until we provided that level of information, again, that came from the kind of access we had to go in there and interview hundreds of people or or give surveys so that they could fill out those surveys, everything was supposition. And so after that, you know, some of the things that the department did, uh, to their credit, um, definitely had an effect in mitigating the spread. I I know the the secretary talks about the fact that there was a 50% spike, and people don't often think of this, there was a 50% spike in uh, serious attacks on uh, corrections officers during the first five months of the pandemic, attacks that required corrections officers to have to get outside medical care. Mm-hmm. After the department instituted the recommendation about greater communication with inmates about what was going on, that dropped 
to the pre-pandemic levels. Mm. And so something that the department realized after the fact was, hey, communicating with the people you're charged with taking care of is important in order to to maintain the sort of legitimacy and safety of not only the people who are in your custody, but your staffers. Um, And so, you know, those are the kind of connections we can make by demonstrably, you know, demonstrably showing through evidence, hey, this is what's going on here. This is what you need to do. Um, And so that's a long way of saying we have a ton of challenges and we have a lot of people who are very skeptical or have very little value for people who in their minds are out of sight and out of mind and maybe beyond redemption in their eyes. But as long as we can continue to get information to decision makers and to the public, they typically, they typically are amenable to trying to do their job better or to being better keepers for the people that they're responsible for taking care of. So I think I'm really encouraged by what's happened in the last year and a half, um, not only with the department itself, but also if you look with legislators, one of the few areas where you're gonna find bipartisan um, action is around some of what's going on in our prisons and what's going on in our criminal legal system. And I think, you know, whether it's because legislators feel it's a waste of money to be spending this much money to warehouse and lock up and arrest people, or people just think it is, um, it's inhumane um, to be doing that. um, And we shouldn't be doing that for ethical reasons, regardless of the reasons you have people on both sides of the aisles coming together now to want to come up with solutions. And again, our job is to say, here's the problem and here's the specific problem, which makes it much easier to solve than not knowing there's a problem or assuming the, the basis for the problem, which actually is not the basis for the problem. Do you think that um, when you come up with a solution um, that you are heard? Sometimes more than others. <laughs> so, okay. so yeah, like, I mean, during the, the, the during COVID-19, I think because there was such a clear and imminent threat, not only to the inmates, but to staffers who could get in, you know, who, who could also get the disease and bring it back to their communities. I think there was a level of responsiveness that you might not have seen if it didn't feel like such an emergency. Um, but I feel, again, if you can educate the public, Mm-hmm. With that, you know, $4 billion of your hard-earned money is going to lock up an increasingly sick and aging population that increasingly poses no threat to you, they're going to start asking questions of their elected officials. And those officials are going to have to come up with answers. Right. right. Um, I was going to ask you about the, you know, geriatric population. But before that, I wanted to ask you, how did Pennsylvania do in terms of deaths from COVID as compared to other states in the nation? Do you have any idea? Yeah. Um, So again, going on the information provided to us by the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections um, and Secretary Wetzel's testimony in the appropriations hearings, 
Um, for a large state, a state of our size, uh, Pennsylvania was one of the top states in the country in terms of the the low number of deaths and the infection rates. Um, again, that's all relative. But again, part of that is, yes, you take basic steps like making sure you have enough hygienic supplies. You make sure your officers consistently mask up. Um, you, you provide opportunities for people to... Uh, to get a vaccine and inform them on the efficacy of getting a vaccine, um, you can make demonstrable change. Right. Were, were um, people inside resistant to the idea of a vaccine or were they pretty cooperative overall? Um, overall, um, inmates in our state correctional institutions um, are far outstripping um, the correction staff in terms of the level of vaccinations. So it hasn't so much been people in custody. And of course, there are people in custody who, for a variety of reasons, are not going to believe or want to have the vaccine, just like we have it in the general public. But as big a problem, if not larger, has been the reluctance of corrections um, staff to be vaccinated. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Talk about the uh, geriatric issues that you, you just uh, mentioned just a minute or so ago in, sure. in, in prison. So before jumping directly into the geriatric issue, what I will say is, you know, Pennsylvania, the prison society has observed, you know, again, with getting hundreds of requests for help a month um, for as long as, you know, we're, we're recording back. Um, and that and those requests even doubling during the pandemic, we saw that the major or the number one issue for people who are in custody in terms of um, they asked us to problem solve around was getting access to health care. So that issue is, of course, exacerbated in more frail or vulnerable populations, um, including uh, geriatric populations. So, uh, so that 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 has how you know the, the connection for us makes the most sense because we're not. I should say what we are doing is relaying the information we're collecting, and so. Reducing the access to care issues is huge. One way you can do that is by reducing obstacles to care, like the $5 medical mm -hmm. copay that inmates have to pay um, when they initiate uh, a sick visit. Another way is by reducing the population, um, the, the geriatric population um, of prisoners in custody here in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and, and, you know, in, in those ways, you can start to answer the, or yeah, answer or pull apart the puzzle or conundrum that, you know, taxpayers are faced every year where right now the Department of Correction will tell you we're at a 20 year low, the, the, the State Department of Correction will say we're, they're at a 20 year low in terms of the number of people who are incarcerated in Pennsylvania. 
And yet they asked for a record high budget. And, and that's just because it costs so much more to have somebody who is elderly and sick or receiving some personal care in a personal care unit than to house um, someone who is, you know, otherwise healthy. You know, it's, you we're talking about four or five times the cost. Um, you know, an average person in custody is about $57,000 a year um, in, in our state correctional system. But that goes up to nearly $183,000 a year for somebody who is elderly or sick or in a skilled care unit um, within the state system. So those are areas that, you know, are obvious, especially when typically people age out, um, for lack of a better word, of criminality or, or age out of having um, a propensity for picking up new criminal charges. So if this population is no threat to public safety, and if it is costing you four to five times um, what your regular population is costing you, then perhaps this is an area that needs attention and needs to be streamlined to allow for a process to return those citizens who are no longer a threat and are just simply an incredible burden on taxpayers. Right, right. And, and as, as I um, often read about other countries, I'm always fascinated to compare. Um, very, very few countries give the sentences we give, the length of time. And they, they let people out so much earlier than we do. Uh, and I, I wonder when we're going to shift our thinking to say this man or woman is no longer uh, a threat and, and should leave. But I don't know. Somehow we just hang on to um, having people complete their sentences. And, and that really, it, it's costly, as you just said. You know. and, and by completing sentences in, in Pennsylvania, where we have life without parole sentences, that's a death sentence. You're you're exactly. saying you're exactly. you're you're going to die behind bars. That's what it um, is. Yeah, and I, I don't know if at any point it made sense, but I, I I won't say I think I know there are more and more legislators on both sides of the aisle who think that this is an idea that needs to be reexamined. That warehousing Good. sick and dying people is not the best way for us to be spending the Department of Corrections money or right. to be spending taxpayers' money. Sorry, Taxpayer. I shouldn't say the Department right. of Corrections money. Right, right, right. Yeah. So um, now a couple things I wanted to ask you. What What is something about your job that people don't know but should? Hmm. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think back to a phrase like in the kingdom of the blind, the man with one eye is king. Right. Um, there's such a dearth of information about what is really going on behind prison walls that when I go into rooms and talk to whether it's the general public or highly motivated advocacy groups um, or elected officials at the county or statewide level, it's really easy to convince them 
not to convince them, but to open their eyes because they have no idea, many of, most of them, what's going on. So I would say my job is easy, but the first step of my job, education, yeah, it, it's easy because with no information as the basis, a short conversation really shifts people's perspectives as to what exactly is going on behind bars and what, you know, sort of sensible solutions are and how well within our reach they are, you know, like the medical and geriatric parole or ending the, you know, mandatory $5 copay, which isn't saving anybody money. It certainly puts lives at jeopardy because it puts, um, if you're an inmate in custody earning 19 to 51 cents an hour, it puts a, um, a $5 copay, the equivalent of a $560 copay for, you know, a state legislator. It puts, you know, medical care out of reach, which endangers you. It endangers staff who are around you. It endangers the communities that you and those staffers are going to return to eventually. Um, that kind of stuff, when you have the opportunity to bring it to the attention of the public and lawmakers, you can quickly start to get some traction there. Um, you know, just in the last couple months, HB 1753 by a Democrat, Amon Brown, out of Philadelphia, um, moved to eliminate the $5 copay um, permanently. It was temporarily suspended during COVID-19. Again, one of the recommendations we'd made in our report, you know, about what life was like behind bars and the department to its credit um, did suspend it, but it has um, reinitiated the $5 copay. But, you know, you have somebody like a Philadelphia Democrat pushing forward HB 1753. And then you have someone like Senator Car Cameron Bartolotta, who also happens to be on our board, um, putting forward legislation in the Senate, similar legislation. And she is a Republican. Mm. Um, and she's not from the, you know, she's not from uh, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. So the fact that you have people on both sides of the aisles um, with very different backgrounds, seeing that, yes, this is not only inhumane, but insensible. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I think speaks volumes to, you know, the level of education and advocacy that is needed around um, the criminal criminal legal system and carceral system in particular. All right. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you was um, people in prison most often don't have a vote, a voice, vote also in our society. We need advocates like you to help make their voices heard. Are there critical issues that you personally want to see changed? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what I've seen, um, like I said, like in terms of the obvious things that we can fix, those are things I want to see change because those are what are affecting more people in custody and more people on the outside in terms of, you know, the family members or just the general community who's paying for it. So, yeah, I, I would love to see, in addition to medical and geriatric parole being streamlined and there being legislation around it to, to increase um, access to that kind of parole, as well as reducing the barriers to healthcare like HB 1753, 
But we can also talk about legislation or action to support keeping families together. Um, mm. And you know, one thing John mentioned was our busing contract um, to to provide busing to people out of the Philadelphia area who have family members 50 or more miles away from them. That contract has expired. It was something that we bid for. The Department of Corrections had bidded it out. Um, we won the bid for it. That contract has expired and the department hasn't replaced it out for bid yet. And although again, the general public doesn't know this, the families, the thousands of families that are affected, the thousands of young people and children who don't now get to have some sort of regular contact um, with their loved ones in custody, feel it. And the, you know, just in general, the, the general consensus among criminologists is keeping families connected. And I think you mentioned this in the initial interview is one of the great levers for reducing recidivism and violence and violence. So when we don't, you know, pay attention to these programs, we're hurting ourselves on so many levels. And so those are the kind of things that we'll continue to advocate for. And those are the kind of things that we think are going to have the greatest impact um, on not only the people who are directly impacted, but the general public as well. Right. Well, we are out of time, Anton, but it's been so great to talk to you and have you tell us so much more about what you do at the Pennsylvania Prison Society. And we look forward in the next couple of weeks to have two of your colleagues talk more in depth about their role at the society, which is different from yours. So thank you so much for being with me today on Pursuing Justice. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you. Harriet, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank, thank you. you for your time and facilitating this really important conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And oh, can I remind everybody? Oh, yeah. I didn't mention, um, I, I think I mentioned previously, but um, we are the Prison Society at prisonsociety.org. So yes, thank you. you can reach us there. You can learn more about our history. You can learn more about the areas of work. And uh, if it makes sense to you, you can support us there. Um, because like I said, we are not a government agency. We rely upon uh, the, the, the public at large for our funding. That's great. I'm glad you added that. Thank you so much. I should have done that. Thank you. And All we'll right. see, see you next time on Pursuing Justice. This is Harriet Hendel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet Hendel.